You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Act two, scene two. The curtain rises. It's an evening, moonlight shines on a balcony. A figure steps out. Oh, Pluto, Pluto, wherefore art thou, Pluto? Deny thy IAU and refuse their name. Thou wilt not a dwarf planet be. Keep thy name, and I'll no longer be a Caplutoet. Yes, a tragic tale. The story of love and loss. A star-crossed planet, beloved by children everywhere, caught in the middle of a raging feud, demoted within its own family to a dwarf planet, a plutoid, an icy rock. Oh, the humanity. But really, when the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, made the controversial decision to strip Pluto of its title as planet, there was no shortage of drama. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Are We Alone? We'll tell the tale of poor demoted Pluto, as well as that of other planets in this hour, part of our series celebrating the International Year of Astronomy. We'll also give you ideas on how to get involved in IYA, but don't wait for us to yap at you. Radio.seti.org. Check out the IYA link. Okay, we return to our drama. In 2006, at a meeting in Prague, the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, not the IYA, the International Year of Astronomy... Yeah, get your acronym straight there. ...decided that Pluto, the ninth planet of the solar system, did not, in the end, have the characteristics of a planet. First of all, Pluto had it coming. Why, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, did Pluto have it coming? Because it had it coming. How many times do I have to tell you? Uh, one more? Pluto had it coming. Well, I see his point. See, Pluto was discovered back in 1930 by Clyde Tombaugh. He was a young guy working at the Lowell Observatory, and he was charged with finding the so-called Planet X, an as-yet-undiscovered body which was thought to be perturbing the motions of Neptune. Well, he did discover an object in the outer solar system, and he assumed that was it. As time went on, it was clear that this new object, which was shortly named Pluto, was not the Planet X that everyone had been looking for. It was too small, didn't have enough gravitational oomph to disturb Neptune, and as the decades passed, our estimates of its size got smaller and smaller and smaller. There are moons of Neptune that are bigger than the planet Pluto. So Pluto doesn't really fit. So that settles that. Anyone disagree? Yes, you. I'm Alan Stern, and I'm at the Southwest Research Institute. That's an independent research and development organization in charge of New Horizons, a spacecraft on its way to Pluto. I just don't buy this demotion, you know. Uh, I can recognize a planet when I see one. Even planetary scientists, planetary scientists who plan three billion mile planetary missions can't agree on whether our ninth planet is a planet. The IAU may have voted Ixnay on the Anaplay, but some scientists, like Alan, have protested. More from him on New Horizons later. 
But first, how to explain how such a little, lonely, and cold solar system body created such a furor? Neil deGrasse Tyson chronicles it all in The Pluto Files, and it's with him that we continue our tale of the planetary underdog, which was discovered nearly 80 years ago. So Pluto stays a planet until the 1990s when we start discovering these other bodies in the outer solar system, these other icy objects, and predicted to be there at mid-century by a, a solar system theorist, Gerard Kuiper, today known as the Kuiper Belt in his honor. And so we look at these other icy bodies and say, hey, wait a minute. They have kind of tipped weird orbits like Pluto. Hey, they're kind of little like Pluto. Hey, they're kind of mostly ice like Pluto. Maybe Pluto's a member of this new class of object recently discovered in the solar system. And so this vote that happened a couple of years ago, which started your question, was a way to try to come to terms with the new understanding of what's going on in the outer solar system. Well, suppose the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, had voted to keep Pluto's status as a planet. Would that have been really such a bad thing? I don't have, I don't, you know, people stereotype me as being anti-Pluto. First, I, I like the, the little the little bugger. He, he's fine. I don't have any problem with, with Pluto. Um, they originally, the IAU, International Astronomical Union, put together a nomenclature committee to find out how to define the word planet, which hasn't been defined since ancient Greece. Uh, most people don't, don't realize that. In ancient Greece, planet is Greek for wanderer, uh, planetes, wanderers. There were seven of them back 2,600 years ago. So... Uh, the seven were Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the Sun, and the Moon. Those are the only objects in the night sky that you could watch move against the background stars. And so that was a category of object in the night sky. Fine. But we know so much more about the solar system now that what are we doing with the word planet? And so the IU said, we got to define it. And that committee was loaded with Pluto lovers. I noticed that up front. So I knew whatever they were going to come up with was going to have Pluto a planet. And you know what their definition was? Are you round? Hmm. Boom, you're a planet. Some of my neighbors are planets. <laughs> okay, round by gravitational means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so that got overthrown because it was just not specific enough. It was kind of it was kind of incomplete in what it people felt it should also contain. So two extra criteria were added. One, are you the one who dominates in your own little uh, moon system? So it's the anti-moon clause. Pluto has three moons, all of which are smaller than it. Okay, so boom, you put a check in that box too. It's round, and it's the biggest out of its moon systems. Third criterion, has it cleared its orbit? Pluto hasn't cleared its orbit. It's swimming with the Kuiper Belt, thousand, countless thousands of Kuiper Belt objects out there. So eh, it loses that criterion, and Pluto is now demoted officially to dwarf planet status. Well, look, for most researchers, whether you call Pluto a planet or an ice dwarf or a round thing out there, I mean, it just it just doesn't matter very much. Uh, I mean, it really doesn't change the nature of your research. The public seems to feel differently. Yeah, and what happened, I, I, had, I learned this quite by accident. We, in the year 2000, back in New York City, where I work, I'm, I, I run the Hayden Planetarium there, part of the American Museum of Natural History. In the year 2000, we opened a brand new exhibit on the universe. So we looked at what was going on in the solar system and realized that all these icy bodies were being discovered in the outer solar system. So we said, maybe Pluto's one of those. So all we did was present the solar system not as an enumeration of planets, we presented it as a group, as groupings of objects with like properties. The, terrestri the rocky terrestrials, Mer Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, we presented those as a group. The gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, that was a group. The Kuiper Belt, icy bodies in the outer solar system with funky orbits, that was a group. We added Pluto to that group. And there it was until the New York Times made a page one story in response to this exhibit saying, Pluto not a planet? 
only in New York. And that's when I started getting hate mail from third graders and people started choosing up sides and my inbox flooded and I became public enemy number one to all the Pluto lovers of the world. Can, can you give me some examples of the sorts of things people were writing you? <laughs> well, in the Pluto files, in, in the book, I, I have, for, for some of the cuter letters, I have literal scans of the letters because you see the crayon scrawl. One of them <laughs> says, Dear Dr. Tyson, put my favorite planet back. Why? Where's, what did you do with Pluto? That's my favorite planet. Here's a picture of it. And they, with crayon, draw a picture of it <laughs> in case I didn't no. And one of them says, write back soon, but not in cursive. I don't know how to read cursive yet. This was the cutest thing. And I realized that this struck a raw nerve. By the way, we didn't actually kick Pluto out of the solar system. We just grouped it differently than people had expected. But it's not how people learned the solar system. It conflicted with this sort of intellectual variant of comfort food, right? You're in elementary school and you learn there are nine planets. They each have a name. They each have a number. Done. You're done with the solar system. And all of a sudden, we think about it differently. It deeply upset people's sensibilities of things. It sounds to me like many of these people held you personally responsible. I suppose that's a consequence of the New York Times headline. Uh, yes, exactly. In fact, the article was not as, as inflammatory as the headline was because, like I said, we did not actually kick Pluto out of the solar system. But I would get, I would get journalists coming, putting microphones in my face saying, so how many planets are there in the solar system? Trying to get some soundbite out of me. And I said, you know, I don't care how many planets there are. Pluto looks like the rest of these. We're going to present it that way. And we judged it to be the scientific as well as the educational high road. By the way, it wasn't just the kids. It was like grown-ups too, as well as colleagues. Everybody was choosing up sides. And I got letters from colleagues that were just as sort of emotionally dripping as the ones for the kids, but they just spelled better. <laughs> That's the only difference between the, the correspondence that I got uh, between the two. Probably didn't write in crayon either. <laughs> What is it about Pluto, Neil, that makes it so charismatic that these Pluto files make such a ruckus to defend its honor? I, I thought long and hard about this. I, ch I checked with Europeans. They didn't care that Pluto was being considered to be demoted. It's an American thing. Then I thought, is it because an American discovered Pluto? So I d d took a poll. Only 10 or 15 percent of those who were Pluto lovers knew that an American had discovered it. So I had to look even deeper and deeper and deeper. And I realized there was no other choice left but that... Pluto was discovered in 1930, the same year Disney first sketched the dog, the right. dog, the <laughs> dog that got the name Pluto. And so Pluto the dog and Pluto the cosmic object have the same tenure in the hearts and minds of Americans. Think about it. When do you first learn about the planets? In elementary school. And if you're a normal kid, you're watching cartoons. And you haven't learned Roman mythology yet. So when they tell you Mercury is one of the planets, that's just a, a name. You're not thinking, oh, that's the Roman messenger god. That's just a name. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Pluto. And therein is born the genetic link that we as Americans have to this diminutive ice ball in the outer solar system. From pooch to planet... All right. Well, finally, Neil, the big question, really. I mean, it, it sounds like you're not going to lobby for Pluto's reinstatement. What the heck does it matter? I mean, we have asteroids, planetoids, shooting stars, meteors, comets. Frankly, despite all the names, and they're all different, there isn't really a whole lot of fundamental difference between the objects. So why does this naming system matter for astronomers? First of all, the IAU, one of their jobs is to sort of fix up the nomenclature. If in Europe they discover an object and they name it something and we in America discover an object and it actually turns out to be the same thing, they'll every now and then clean up the vocabulary and say, you guys are talking the same thing, use this word instead. And it's guidance so that we can all speak coherently with each other. 
So, when it comes time to invoking words, it becomes point of efficiency in the lexicon of a, of a field. So what words do enable professionals to communicate efficiently with each other. That's the challenge. And the, by the way, the biologists have had to do that from the beginning. The whole Linnaean system of, of kingdom, phylum, order, species, family, however that goes, that's an attempt to make order out of the extraordinary diversity of life in the, in the world. We do not yet have that kind of organizational vocabulary for the solar system. And no, there's a sufficient difference among these objects that they deserve different ways to categorize them. And we don't yet have that. And so this Pluto episode called to our attention the need for a brand new lexicon so that solar system folks can have a conversation with each other and without going to fisticuffs. So what does it really matter? It certainly doesn't matter to Pluto. Pluto is, is Pluto just whatever it is, and it's happy. Whatever. Actually, I think Pluto is happier as a Kuiper Belt object because first it's, it, it's no longer viewed as odd because everybody else behaves that way, so it's normal. So it's now one of the kings of the icy objects instead of being like the puniest planet. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, Pluto's destined to be a, a big frog in a big pond of small frogs or something like that. <laughs> Neil Tyson, thanks so much for coming in and talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist, head of the Hayden Planetarium, and the author of The Pluto Files, The Rise and Fall of America's Favorite Planet. Now, Pluto's demotion came a few months after the launch of NASA's New Horizons mission to the, at the time, last unexplored planet. That was in January 2006. New Horizons is now three years into its three-billion-mile journey. Well, planet or no, Pluto is a solar system body we're excited to explore, says Alan Stern, and the sooner the better, which explains why New Horizons took off at the speed it did. There may be no such thing as a free launch, but there can be a darn fast one. Fastest spacecraft ever launched, so fast that we crossed the orbit of the moon in just nine hours. Literally, we took off at two in the afternoon, and the newscasters could say, film at 11. <laughs> We, we uh, took off at about almost 40,000 miles an hour, uh, which is by far the fastest ever to depart the Earth. Okay, but uh, how long is it going to take to get to Pluto? Pluto's not next door. No, it's very far away. It takes nine and a half years, traveling like a bat out of hell 24-7. So that gets there, what, 2015? Yes, on July the 14th, 2015, at almost noon uh, Greenwich Mean Time. Now, is it not the case that Pluto is actually not the only example of a kind of a big ice ball in the outer regions of the solar system? Right. Well, Pluto's uh, 2,500 kilometers across. It's big. And uh, uh, it turns out it's, it's the harbinger, the first discovered of a whole new class of planets called the ice dwarfs that litter the outer solar system. Really, this is the most prevalent class of planet in our, in our solar system, maybe in the galaxy. So when you say that, it actually sounds like rather than being demoted, in a sense, Pluto has simply joined, uh, if you will, the majority crowd when it comes to solar systems. Yeah, we had a very naive view of uh, the architecture of our solar system and the population of our solar system. It's almost as if instead of being in astronomy, we had grown up as biologists on a desert island and thought, you know, most forms of life on Earth must be palm trees. And then you come to realize there are elephants and there are giraffes and there are fishes and all these things we didn't expect. And that's what the outer solar system contains. Great variety and great numbers of planets that we didn't know existed as recently as the 1990s. You've got a lot of instrumentation on board this spacecraft, I assume. Uh, what sort of things is it going to measure about Pluto? Well, we do. We have seven very sophisticated instruments. Uh, we have a sense of uh, sight. We're going to be able to map Pluto and its moons despite the very faint 
um, illumination levels that far from the sun. We're going to map point to point to point everywhere on the surface that we, we uh, can observe the surface composition, not only of Pluto, but also through all three of its moons. We'll map the surface temperature everywhere. Uh, and then, in addition to all this imagery, uh, we're going to be determining the composition and structure of its atmosphere, its atmospheric escape rate, We'll be tracking clouds and hazes, uh, and then we'll be measuring material that's escaping off the atmosphere to determine what it's made out of. So what are the big questions that we really want to answer? I mean, what will Pluto tell us that we don't know and want to know? Well, uh, this is a first reconnaissance mission, and so we know from all the early first reconnaissance missions, the first mission to Mars in 1965, the first mission to Jupiter in uh, the very early 1970s, the first mission to Mercury in the mid-1970s, and so forth and so on, that um, we're always surprised by the richness and diversity of nature. So we're going with our eyes wide open and a tremendous suite of instruments with objectives like map the surface and map the surface composition and determine how the atmosphere works because we know that this is a wholly new type of world. We've never been to an ice dwarf planet before. And this is going to teach us everything we're going to know for a very long time because there are no other missions on the books to the frontier of the Kuiper Belt. And is it going to continue on? Will it do any science once it uh, sails by Pluto? Well, absolutely. We hope to make flybys of at least one and possibly, although unlikely, as many as three Kuiper Belt objects, these small, ancient uh, building blocks of the outer solar system that um, are in the same region out there at this frontier where Pluto lies. And finally, Alan, since your spacecraft isn't going to get to Pluto for a number of years yet, 2015, is this at all frustrating or do you find things to do in the meantime? I find a few things to do in the meantime, but I gotta say, Seth, you know, we worked on this for 14 years to get it funded. We worked on it for three more years to get it built. We are three years into a nine-year journey. The way I count that, um, we are this year 20 years into a 26-year adventure to get to Pluto. We're on the downhill glide. <laughs> Alan Stern, thanks for talking to me. Thanks again. Thanks for asking. Alan Stern is a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute, lead investigator on NASA's New Horizons, and former assistant administrator of the Science Mission Directorate at NASA. Oh, oh, I should get out of the way. Here come the contestants. Attention, everyone. Next round of applicants interested in the open planetary spot. Now vacant, planet number nine. Come on in. Hey, keep it orderly. Uh, step up to the mic, please. My name's Acario. You're not Roman Pantheon. Native American. What have you got for me? Check out my sphericity. Well, you're round. I'll, I'll give you that. Have you got any atmosphere? 100 millibars of nitrogen. Close. Not enough. Next. Go ahead. Don't be shy. Hi there. Is that thing a moon you brought with you? Yes, but it's I... It's bigger than you are. No planets have moons bigger than they are. Hey, did anyone here bother to read the actual IAU requirements for this position? Show her the door, Sid. It's over there, sweetheart. What do we got now? Hi, I'm Hilda. That's different. It says here you want to be a planet. Back when I was a kid, just a swarm of planetesimals... No time for sentimentality, kid. Is your core molten? No, but I have plate tectonics. That's just a cracked lithosphere. Sid, where are you getting these guys? Sorry about that, JB. I said I wanted a planet, not a bunch of worthless rocks. A planet, spherical, bigger than its moons. Is that too much to ask? Next. Hurry up. Hi, I'm C199501. 
Sorry about this tale, but whenever I get near the sun, it tends to catch fire a and- A comet! You're a comet! Sid! But picture it, if I lose the tail, bulk up on meteors, I'm sure gravity- More planets, real ones, coming up on Are We Alone? in the International Year of Astronomy. Find out more at radio.seti.org. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. As much as we love Pluto, who'd want to live on its minus 400-degree frozen surface? Well, life might give Pluto the cold shoulder, but astronomers are certainly interested in other worlds where life might thrive. So the hunt for habitable planets is on, and it's getting a big boost with the Kepler mission named for the 17th century German astronomer Johannes Kepler. The first to correctly explain the motions of the planets, Kepler's legacy lives on. Hi, I'm uh, Jeffrey Van Cleve, and I work at the uh, Kepler Science Office. In one word, what do you do? I'm an astronomer. With a voice like that, you should be a late-night radio jazz host. At any rate, you are the person to tell us about Kepler, NASA's mission to Earth-like planets. Oh, and it also helps that you're an engineer on the project. Jeff, Kepler mission, it's underway. It's looking for planets. How's it going to find them? We're looking for the shadows of planets like our Earth. Uh, orbiting stars like our sun. And the way we find those shadows is on rare occasions, uh, a star system is lined up just right so that the planet passes in front of the star and blocks out a little bit of its light. This is called a transit. And we have built a camera that's very precise and able to measure one part in 10,000 dimming of that starlight when a planet passes in front of the star. So what's the smallest world it could find? Well, it depends uh, what kind of star that world is circling because uh, red dwarf stars are a lot smaller than our sun. So a planet of a given size produces a larger relative shadow, so to speak, when it passes in front of a red dwarf than a star like our sun. Kepler is supposed to be able to detect uh, planets the size of our Earth passing in front of stars the size of our sun. But since uh, many stars are half the diameter of our sun or less, Kepler ought to be able to detect Mars-sized planets around some of those uh, what we astronomers call later stars. They're smaller and redder than our sun. Well, so far, we don't have a single discovery of an Earth-like planet. Now, undoubtedly, you've made some sort of rough estimate of how many of these terrestrial cousins Kepler might find. What, what would that estimate be? Are you looking for one, a hundred? I mean, how many do you expect to find? We expect to find uh, around 50 Earth-like planets if every star like our sun uh, has one Earth-like planet. Now, in our solar system, of course, we have one obviously Earth-like planet, and it's arguable as to whether Venus and Mars were at some time Earth-like. But uh, another fact that we use is when we find large planets, which of course are easier to see than small planets, it seems about roughly 30% of stars have big planets. And so in the total absence of other information, if you think 30% of stars have Earth-like planets too, then, uh, then we would wind up with a couple of dozen of Earths. But the purpose of Kepler is to measure 
how common Earths are, not solely to discover the first one. We want to build a machine that will give us a significant result, even if that result is Earth-like planets are rare. Well, let me follow up on that. What would a negative result mean in the sense that suppose Kepler goes up and after years it has not found even a single Earth-like world. What does that tell you about how common Earth-like worlds are? It tells you with a high level of confidence that less than 5% of sun-like stars have Earth-like planets. And the way we have confidence is we're looking at 100,000 stars at once. And of those stars, maybe uh, 1,000 or so have their star systems edge on to us so the planets, if they exist, would pass in front of those stars. So we have a large enough sample so that not seeing anything actually means something. All right, so even a negative result is an important result, even though somewhat discouraging for those who are looking for life elsewhere. I think many of us would be very disappointed at a negative result, but it's a lot less disappointing than not knowing what the results mean at all. Finally, Jeff, when should we expect the headlines, assuming they're going to be some? Well, uh, we need to observe three transits of a given object in order to convince ourselves it's real. I mean, if it's a planet, it's going around its star in a regular amount of time. And so we have to look at the time difference between the first and second and second and third transits to show everybody, yeah, this is going around in a regular orbit rather than some artifact. And uh, here's where our friends the red dwarfs come in again. Because they're small and they don't give off a lot of light, planets that are about the same temperature of the Earth are huddled very close to them and going around very quickly. So those planets can go around their stars in a few months, maybe two months. And so two months times three transits is six months, plus another uh, two months for us to get the instrument up and running and make sure we understand how it's working, and then a month or so to uh, prepare some kind of announcement to the science community. I I think... The best opportunity to talk about early results will be the January 2010 meeting of the American Astronomical Society. I expect leaks by Christmas. I know, but (laughs) this is is big game, and we've been cautioned against leaking as much as is humanly possible. But certainly the AAS meeting in January would be a great forum to talk about our first results. American Astronomical Society forum. January 2010. We'll look forward to it. Jeff Van Cleve, thanks for talking with me. You're welcome, Seth. Jeffrey Van Cleve is an engineer on NASA's Kepler mission. Every year, the TED Prize is handed out to a select group of recipients in an exclusive invitation, only hard to near impossible to get tickets, annual ceremony. Those receiving the award are not only leaders in their field, they're visionaries who have one wish that would change the world. Along with the honor of the prize comes $100,000 to help them fulfill their wish. Past winners include Bill Clinton, the biologist E.O. Wilson, and the singer Bono. This year, the SETI Institute's Jill Tarter stood before the crowd to accept her award for her work searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. So my question, are we alone? The story of humans is the story of ideas. Scientific ideas that shine light into dark corners. Ideas that we embrace rationally and irrationally. Ideas for which we've lived and died and killed and been killed. Ideas that have vanished in history and ideas that have been set in dogma. 
It's a story of nations. Jill, your presentation was about something that might change the world. What would that be, Jill? I think that SETI is a world changer, Seth. I think that if we can tell the story correctly, then we can get people on this planet to realize that humans are all the same when compared to another potential civilization and species out there. So you you just think that the announcement of a detection would be world-changing? Is that it, or is it what follows thereafter? No, I think it's the change of perspective that is so important. Because today, we kill each other over different pigments and different ideologies. We're all earthlings, and we need to adopt that perspective and take better care of one another. Now, the title of your talk, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was about the future of SETI. And since, of course, we have not yet made that detection, clearly the impact of SETI does depend on its future. How do you foresee the future of SETI, particularly in in the the context of the TED Award? Well, I'm not really good with a crystal ball. Uh, I'm not sure whether Carl Sagan's picture of what happens after a signal is detected is, is the right one. Is it a circus? Does everyone go out and celebrate or go home and hide? I, I don't know. Uh, the future that I'm talking about is how we get from here to that actuality of a signal detection, how we do our job better, and how do we get the world involved. It's an opportunity for the world. How do we get the world to be able to participate with us and maybe shorten the fulfillment time between now and the detection of a signal? Well, concretely then, what did you suggest to get the world involved? Did you have a, you know, something specific in mind, how they could individually contribute? Well, certainly building telescopes, making the array more sensitive is very high on my list. But other ways that people can contribute depends on their level of technical expertise. The entire open source community of developers can get involved by looking at data that is stored. And on this large data set, people can try and develop algorithms to find more complex types of signals than we are currently able to uh, detect. If they don't have the technical sophistication, we could think about humans using their eyes to look through that data and think about the eye as an already extremely efficient and evolved pattern detector. They might be able to recognize patterns and say, oh, let's put that aside, and oh, let's put that aside, and thereby sort of serve as a, as a human TiVo, if you wish, recording only the good stuff and, and enriching the data set that developers have to work with. So a developer with a clever algorithm will know that they have a, a set of stored information that is really rich with signals, and they can try their algorithms on that. There's some precedent for this, isn't there, in, uh, for example, surveys of galaxies, deep surveys of the sky, where you involve people in recognizing galaxies, classifying them? That's right. That's the Galaxy Zoo, and now there's even the second generation um, that the uh, Sloan Digital Sky Survey is going to be uh, opening up to the world. So, So humans are good at pattern recognition, even if you can't tell them what the pattern might be can still be recognized, still realize that that particular 
piece of data includes something other than noise. They'll know it when they see it. Well, finally, Jill, uh, suppose a few years down the road, I'm somebody doing this. I'm looking at uh, SETI data on my computer screen, not uh, automatically processing it, but actually visually deciding, is this something interesting or not? I find something. It turns out to be our first contact with ET. Do I get any of the credit? Oh, absolutely. You get all the credit, I would say. One of the challenges is going to be to keep people coming back. Uh, You look at a lot of noise, you don't see anything, maybe you see a pattern and you don't know what happens to that after it. I think we're going to have to incentivize people, maybe with a game, maybe with some competitive reward system. I don't know yet how this might play out. But these are opportunities that we at the SETI Institute, being a very small team, couldn't consider on our own. But given the incredible resources of the TED community, I think we can pull something off here. And I'm really excited. And I'm really eager to involve the the planet. Jill Tarter, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Seth. Jill Tarter is the director of SETI Research at the SETI Institute. Coming up, we moon over other celestial bodies, one in particular in orbit around Saturn. Also, the Italian who forever changed our vision of the moon, the planets, and ourselves. One guess. It's Are We Alone? Our sixth planet from the sun, Saturn, has hosted a foreign satellite among its 30 moons since 2004. And that's the year that the NASA spacecraft Cassini reached this system and began its lengthy waltz around the planet to study its rings and its moons. Two celebrities were among those moons, Titan and Enceladus. Titan, because it's the biggest in the Saturnian system and the second biggest in the solar system, has surface liquids and a thick, mysterious hydrocarbon atmosphere. And Enceladus, because it has jets of water spraying from its poles, suggesting that there's liquid water beneath. We've learned from Cassini that the moons of planets are every bit as interesting as their parent bodies. Up until now, the majority of our up-close and personal information about the Saturnian system came from the Voyager spacecraft flybys of the 1980s. Well, Cassini has taken us far, far beyond that, says Carolyn Porco, the imaging team leader for the mission. But Saturn's way out in the dim, dark outer solar system, not in the relatively nearby and semi-tropical locales of, say, Mars or Venus, isn't going there kind of like cruising town on a Monday night? Not much happening? There is a lot going on in the outer solar system. There was a lot going on in the past, and even today we find geologic activity on moons around Saturn, like Titan, like Enceladus. But with Voyager, we found there was geologic activity on Triton, which is a moon around Neptune. It's it's the reason why we explore, because we don't know what we're going to find until we get there. Big surprises in the outer solar system. You mentioned Titan, which, after all, used to be considered the biggest moon in the solar system. I I don't think it quite is, but it's called Titan. It is big, but it's shrouded in smog. Uh, Have you been able to penetrate the smog? Well, that's, that's a good question, and we had that on the brain as we were conceiving the Cassini mission because the Voyager cameras, of course, did not penetrate the smog. It was a big disappointment to the Voyager imaging team that they never got to see down at the surface of Titan. And we learned a trick from the ground-based observers who were observing Titan that there are places to look in the Titan spectrum, if you go into the near-infrared, where the atmosphere is in fact transparent and you can see down to the surface. So we outfitted our cameras with special spectral filters to allow us to do that. 
And we, with our cameras, have seen down to the surface of Titan. And finally, Cassini carries a radar instrument. And so we, we're we in good with the surface of Titan these days. Okay, obvious question. You've seen the surface. What's down there? We didn't quite understand what we were seeing with our images from orbit until the Huygens probe descended down through the atmosphere of Titan in January, mid-January of 2005, so within about six months of getting into orbit. And it just blew us away with what it found obvious geological features caused by flowing liquids uh, and smooth, uh, smooth areas and unconsolidated ground under the Huygens probe that's wet with methane. So the probe landed in the Titan equivalent of a mudflat. Um, we are finding uh, bodies of uh, liquid hydrocarbons in the polar regions. The radar instrument is finding dune fields swathing the uh, equatorial region of Titan. Uh, we see craters in places. We see the results of, you know, liquid runoff. And it's, it's a body that has very familiar geologic and meteorological processes going on in very unfamiliar materials. So, so this is the only other body in the solar system that we know about which actually has liquids on its surface other than Earth, right? That is, I'm thinking, I'm doing a mental scan of the solar system, and you are right. There is liquid water on the surface of the Earth, there's liquid methane on the surface of Titan, and no other body has liquid on the surface except if you want to count Mars when apparently, according to some scientists, water sometimes erupts, uh, but it's only temporary and ephemeral. Okay, so th there are lakes, uh, you, you found some lakes on the surface of Titan, uh, not filled with water, you've already mentioned that. It's a little bit cold on Titan. What, what's a daytime temperature? What's a good daytime temperature on Titan if it's a good day? Uh, it's, uh, we think, something like 300 degrees below zero Fahrenheit on a good day on Titan. And high noon on Titan is as dim as deep Earth twilight is. It's a very bizarre, very alien environment. But if you were to go there, you would see familiar things. You would see bodies of liquid, but they would be bodies of liquid hydrocarbons, so think of paint thinner. And you would see uh, channels and canyons, and you would see dune fields, but it would be strange exploration. All right, well, uh, it's paint thinner, lakes of paint thinner. It might have some commercial application, but of course, the question is, could you have any sort of biochemistry in a place like that? Well, there are people really eager to know that, and uh, there's lots of methane, in the atmosphere. There's more methane in the atmosphere than you could get by the simple evaporation of the fluids on the surface. So the question is, where does all the methane in the atmosphere come from? And we don't know the answer to that, but there are people who think that it, you know, it's not out of the question. You might have organisms underneath the surface that could be producing methane, you know, methanogens. That's been a... a not, not, not cows. These would be very small organisms. <laughs> not cows, not lobsters, no. No sushi. No sushi. Look, can I just turn briefly to another moon of Saturn that uh, Cassini's been investigating, and that's Enceladus, a rather small moon. I think it's like seven times smaller than the, our moon in diameter or something on that order. And one assumed it was just going to be a big ice ball, but it had its own surprises. Uh, yeah, I would say it, it has been the biggest surprise. It's really my favorite, actually, because while we did suspect 
even before we got there with Cassini, that there might be some kind of jetting activity because of the E-ring. Uh, we never, ever expected it to be as visually spectacular and dramatic as it turned out to be. You say jetting, and what you mean is, is some sort of material being shot out, sort of like a, a geyser out of Enceladus. Uh, I say jets because that's what it looks like. It's material jetting and producing these very narrow, lots of very narrow jets. But those jets, we think now, are geysers, and geysers carries the very specific definition of erupting from pockets of liquid water. And it's been the thing that points to a very exciting possibility that under the subsurface of the South Pole region on Enceladus, which we know already is giving off excess warmth, has coming out of it water vapor and simple organic compounds, we think there's liquid water as well. In fact, maybe liquid salty water. And so we're, it's just coming together over the last few years. We're becoming more and more confident that we do we very likely do. You know, we scientists, we don't like to commit to anything definitely, but, you know, it's looking really good that we might have a, a zone, a habitable zone under the surface of Enceladus where at least prebiotic chemistry and maybe even life might be stirring. Carolyn Porco, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, you are so welcome. Carolyn Porco is the leader of the Cassini imaging team. Well, all these missions, to Pluto, to the moons of Saturn, the upcoming NASA mission to Europa, which is an intriguing moon of Jupiter, and even the Kepler mission might never have occurred if one man had not tilted his telescope skyward. The International Year of Astronomy celebrates the 400th anniversary of Galileo's first celestial observations, his telescope, and all that his keen eye revealed to us about our cosmos. He shaped our understanding of the physical characteristics of planets and our own moon and radically changed our idea of how we fit into it all. Astronomer Andrew Fracknoy reminds us what Galileo did and that part of the Italian astronomer's mission was to make astronomy accessible to the public. That spirit continues with the International Year of Astronomy and events that encourage everyone to step behind a telescope and come eyeball to eyeball with the universe. As Galileo did in Venice in 1609. There were a number of things that he was able to see that no one had seen before. For example, he looked at the moon and there the moon had mountains. We had always seen that there was structure on the moon, but it became much clearer in his telescope. He looked at the stars that made up the Milky Way, and he saw that this great river of spilled milk, as the ancients called it, was actually made up of myriad stars. Uh, many, many different things became visible to him that had never been seen before because the only instrument we'd had up to that time was the human eye. Well, what was this telescope like? I mean, today we're awed by these amazing telescopes like Hubble, but that's certainly not what Galileo had at his disposal. What was his telescope like? Yes, it's actually amazing now to think that all the, the great breakthroughs that Galileo made were made with a tiny telescope, that's something that would be like a toy today. Um, but what he did was to take that tiny instrument and to see night after night, what could be seen in familiar places. So, for example, eventually he would take the telescope and project an image of the sun through it. Now, we had seen the sun for centuries, for as long as humans had had the vision to see. And yet, for him, the sun became a whole new object when he saw that there were dark spots on the surface of the sun, just like the Milky Way became a whole new way of seeing the universe. His first observations took place in Venice, and the Italian uh, military was interested in using this telescope for other reasons, not so much to look at the heavens, but to look at the horizon. 
Absolutely. In, in fact, it, our listeners have to think back to what it was like in those days in Italy. Italy was made up of individual city-states, many of them at war with each other and frequently invading one another. So if you were uh, charged with protecting the security of your particular city-state, you needed an early warning system. What was an early warning system? It was something that would allow you to know when invaders were on the way. And the telescope allowed the city fathers or the, the military protectors of that city-state to see earlier when ships were coming on the horizon to make out better what the threats were to that particular city-state. So actually, when Galileo first perfected the telescope, his first act was to sell it to the military as something which would help protect the security of the state. And he got a stipend out of that, which allowed him to continue to do astronomy at night. So he found support, like a lot of scientists need. Just like today, we get <laughs> government support. He was one of the first to, to play that in just the right way. Now, he looked at the moon. As you said, he also turned his sights on the planet Saturn. And when he first saw Saturn in the eye of his telescope, he thought it had ears. Why did he think it had ears? That's right. When he looked at the rings through this very primitive telescope, the rings of Saturn looked like there were two ears or two cup handles on either side of it. And he couldn't figure out what it was. It took a completely different mind and a different imagination to do that. But still amazing that he could see that much. If we look into the sky with our bare eye, we can't see anything like that. The idea that a telescope 400 years ago allowed him to see the rings at all is extraordinary, is it not? It really is. And it shows you the power of the telescope as a light bucket. Just like a big bucket allows you to gather more rain in the middle of a drought, so a big telescope is an instrument for gathering and then focusing much more light. And the more light you have, the more you can make out, the fainter things you can begin to see. And that's what happened with Saturn. That's what happened with Jupiter. That's what happened with the Milky Way. A lot of what Galileo did was simply to identify things that had never been possible for viewing with the naked eye. Did people believe him when he said that there were these moons that went around Jupiter? If you weren't able to see it for, with your own eyes, you would think that these would be the ravings of a lunatic, you might, or you might be very suspect. It's true that there were some people who simply wouldn't believe it until they saw it for themselves. And then we are told by the historians that there were a few people who didn't believe it even after they saw it themselves, that it so went against their deepest held personal and religious beliefs that they could simply not bring themselves to accept the evidence of their eyes. But that was pretty rare. Most people actually were dying for a look. Galileo had a lot of people who wanted to look through his telescope. And when people looked, they were amazed but also convinced. Here clearly was a whole nother center in the solar system. Well, this really leads directly into my next question, and it's something that you've given talks on. You said that Galileo and his telescope not only changed our view of the sky, but they changed our view of everything. What do you mean? Before Galileo, the, the way in which we settled debates about the natural world was to argue really loud. Um, and the Greeks were really good at that. The person who argued the most eloquently and with the greatest volume often won the debate. And they would have discussions like, what would the gods prefer, circles or ellipses, things like that. What Galileo said was, this is all great gang arguing, but what we really want to do is to see what nature prefers. How do we know what nature prefers? Let's do the experiment. 
and Galileo really was the pioneer who said to find out what the world is like, we require experiments and observations, and they're going to settle our arguments once and for all. He found that the only way to explain the changes in light on the surface of Venus was if Venus went around the sun, not around the earth, but around the sun. Another person may have said, oh, there's something wrong with your telescope. There's something wrong with our ideas. Don't worry about this. But Galileo said, no, let me accept what the telescope tells me. Let me accept what nature's trying to say and build our ideas from that. And that's why he's also considered one of the founders of science, of modern-day science, not just in astronomy and cosmology, but all the sciences. That's correct. He's certainly the father of what we would call the physical sciences or physics. He demonstrated a lot about motion. But I think for from our perspective in the, thinking about the International Year of Astronomy, uh, one of the great things that, that Galileo was willing to do was to show that the universe had more to it than we had ever dreamed about. Well, you mentioned the International Year of Astronomy and how this ties into that. The purpose of the International Year of Astronomy is to get everyone involved in astronomy. You don't have to be a Galileo-like figure to get involved. Well, I should say that, in fact, this is in the tradition of Galileo as well. Galileo was one of the first to write up his results, not in Latin, which was the technical language of science, but in the everyday language that the people spoke. And he was very big on communicating his results accessibly to the public. And what's interesting to me about the International Year of Astronomy is that it's that kind of year. It's not a year where we're doing particular research about astronomy. It's a year devoted to sharing the excitement of astronomy with the public at large. What would you say to someone who's a little telescope shy, who has never looked through a telescope, um, who is certainly interested in the stars but doesn't know much about astronomy? What do I do to get started? You should definitely go to the websites. Uh, I know that on the website for the for the show, you guys have a list of websites that people can go to. The main website is astronomy2009.us. And on there, you can find all kinds of links to how to get involved locally, events, etc. And again, if you want to find links to that and to the International Year of Astronomy page and also to our collection of International Year of Astronomy events, you can go to radio.seti.org. Well, finally, if, if Galileo were around today, certainly much has developed in astronomy and cosmology since he was alive. Um, what events do you think he would go to this year? Well, I think if Galileo were alive, there would be two things he'd do. One, he would love to go to a star party and show off. I think he was the kind of person who was very sociable and voluble, and I think he'd be the center of attention at any star party he went to. But I think the other thing that Galileo would really enjoy would be a meeting of the American Astronomical Society. This is the research organization of astronomers in the United States. And I think he would have a ball because many of the things that he started 400 years ago are now bearing fruit. We are learning things about the Galilean moons of Jupiter, the moons that Galileo discovered, that are fantastic. There's a moon that is in a constant state of volcanic eruption. There's another moon he discovered that has a layer of ice under which there might be a liquid ocean. So I think Galileo would have a tremendously exciting time at a meeting of astronomers talking about the latest discoveries. Andy Fracknoy, thank you very much for joining us. A great pleasure to be with you.
Andrew Fracknoy is chair of the astronomy program at Foothill College in Los Altos, California. And that's it for our show. Thank you for lending us your ears. And thanks to Barbara Vance, Gary Niederhoff, and Emmanuel Romero for their help with the program. And the SETI Institute and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. And now, get out there and stare at the sky. For some tips on how you can get involved with IYA, go to radio.seti.org.